Years ago, when I was serving in student ministry, there was a student who uh, had to attend the viewing at a funeral home for someone that was dear to him. It was someone that he had known, but somebody that was also very dear to him. Uh, This young student at the time, he had known the gospel, he had heard the gospel, he had known of occasions in scripture where God had raised people from the dead and the miraculous things that God had done, including like that, raising people from the dead. He knew testimonies of God's amazing intervention in history, and he went, as he recalled the story to me, he went to that viewing at that funeral home with a primary intention. And that primary intention was to raise his loved one from the dead. He was young. He was in junior high at the time. So you can't really, you know, blame him in some degree. He's hearing this and he didn't tell me about this. If he would have asked me beforehand, do you think I should go to the funeral home and raise my loved one from the dead? I would have said, oh, hold on there. I, I, I think there are a few reasons why that's not a good idea for you to try to do. But nonetheless, this was his own idea. And so he made his way to the uh, funeral home. And then when he got to the funeral home, he mustered up the courage to walk up to where the casket and the corpse was. And then he stretched forth his hand. He put his hand upon the corpse. And suddenly, he became so afraid (laughs) that he moved away from the corpse. And he might have even left the funeral home shortly thereafter because he was so afraid. So it didn't work out the way that he had intended. He had a certain level of expectation in his heart and mind for what could happen, but when he went there, it didn't happen the way he thought it was going to happen, or at least hoped it would happen. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like if that man, that loved one of his, was raised from the dead. Can you imagine people going to the funeral home and expecting to do what you normally do? You pay your respects. And then all of a sudden when they go there, they see that there is no body where the body is supposed to be. Or perhaps they run into the the person that they thought was deceased, like outside, and he's talking to other people. You could imagine people going with certain expectations. I'm going to pay my respects. I'm going to see other family members or friends. And all of a sudden, it far exceeds their expectations when the body's not there. And when the person that they thought to find dead is actually alive. And with that, you get a little bit of an idea of what the women in our text went through on that Resurrection Sunday morning. They went to the tomb and they went there with certain expectations, expectations of one kind or another. We're going to see some of the expectations they had in the text, but what they came to find far exceeded their expectations. We'll get into that shortly, but as we prepare to go into the passage before us, namely Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, I want to briefly call your attention to Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. I want us to see the events that transpired after Jesus was crucified and see how they demonstrate the amazing providence of God and the superintending of history. Beginning in Mark 15, verse 40, and I'm going to read through it all and make some comments after. Um, We read the following. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph 
Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Now, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, under the Mosaic law, if the people of Israel had left a dead body, the body of a man, hanging upon a tree overnight, that would defile the land. Jesus died around 3 p.m., and nightfall would come not too long after, say around 6 o'clock, sometime after that. So there was only a certain amount of time to act. And in God's providence, indeed, a man did act. Joseph of Arimathea. He was a prominent council member who in the providence of God, he decides to act and he has to take up courage to act. And you can imagine why he needed to take up courage to act. Because in the, side, in the, in the eyes of the Jews and the Romans alike, Jesus was a malefactor. This was a criminal. And Joseph had a lot to lose. He was a rich man and a prominent council member. And if the chief priests and the, the religious men that he served alongside heard of him doing such a thing, he had much to lose. He couldn't know exactly how the Romans would react, how Pilate would react to his request for Jesus' body. So he took courage and he went and he identified himself with Jesus of Nazareth. And the fact that he did is amazing and we'll see why in a moment. I want to call your attention to two things. First, Pilate was amazed that Jesus died as quickly as he did. This was, among other things, a testimony to the perfect sovereignty of God. When condemned criminals lived too long, depending on the circumstances that surrounded an event, sometimes their death would be hastened or expedited by the breaking of their legs. Not all the time. Sometimes criminals would just hang, and they would hang there on the cross, and they would die on the cross, and then their corpses would be there as a kind of warning signal to those who would dare to go against Roman leadership. But sometimes their Deaths had to be expedited. And so there Jesus was on the cross, and Pilate marvels that he died as quick as he did. But we remember what happened, that thieves alongside of Jesus didn't die as quickly as Jesus did. And what happened to them? Well, in light of the Sabbath that was approaching, their legs had to be broken so as to hasten their death. Because when somebody was on the cross, if you were to break their legs, they could no longer hold themselves up. They would quickly die thereafter, then suffocating. But Jesus had died already. And with his dying before they died, with his dying quickly as communicated through Pilate, it's amazing that in one action and in one inaction, biblical prophecy was fulfilled. The one action being Jesus died, but then they had to make sure he was dead. They didn't need to break his legs, so he was thrust through with a spear. That's the one action. And then in the inaction, namely that they didn't need to break his legs, prophecy was fulfilled in both cases, in that he was pierced and in that his legs or bones were not broken. John calls attention to this in the 19th 19th chapter of John's Gospel. In verses 36 and 37, John says, For these things were done. What things? He was thrust through with a spear while he was dead on the cross. 
and his legs were not broken. These things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. A reference from Psalm 34, verse 20. And again, another scripture that says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Quoting from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. See, Pilate was amazed that Jesus had died so quickly, but from our vantage point, we are amazed, though we should not be surprised, that Jesus' death and the speed with which He died on the cross, even as He laid His life down and committed His Spirit to the Father, was in perfect conjunction with God's sovereignty, and it was a necessary precursor to the fulfillment of divine prophecy. Next, I want to remind you how amazing it was that Jesus was placed in a tomb. It wasn't uh, the common modus operandi, so to speak, for crucified criminals to be taken down and placed in tombs. As I said, oftentimes the Romans would leave criminals just hanging on the cross. They would let the birds of the air come and peck away at these people as they had died to be, again, a warning signal to those who might cross Rome. But then when they were taken down from the cross, oftentimes these criminals, these malefactors, would be kind of laid in a kind of mass grave, so to speak. Essentially thrown out, if you will. But that wasn't to be the case with Jesus. If Jesus was thrown into a pit or into an unmarked tomb, the scripture of the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53 verse 9, wouldn't have been fulfilled. But Isaiah 53 9 was fulfilled. There, the second half of the text reads, reading from the NASB, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet He was with a rich man in His death. He was crucified with criminals, and thus His grave would be assigned with them, but there wasn't, that wasn't the end of it. There was another part of the story. He'd be buried in the tomb of a rich man. He'd be with the rich in His death. The latter precipitated by the courageous act of Joseph of Arimathea. Think of the wisdom of God in that. If the women would have gone to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, would they have received the body of Pilate, the body of Jesus from Pilate? I can't say for sure, but I don't think so. If the disciples went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, would they have received the body of Jesus from Pilate? I can't say for sure, but I don't think so. But if you had a prominent council member one who is a rich man and a prominent man coming to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. Indeed, he receives the body of Jesus and it's fitting that it was him and not them because he was a rich man who had a large tomb. You notice in the passage that I read to you that it's so big that you could even walk into this tomb. This wasn't a small tomb. And it's fitting that it would have been Joseph of Arimathea because he was a rich man and Scripture and prophecy was fulfilled even in Jesus' burial. Not only in his crucifixion, but also in his burial, and subsequently in his resurrection. Furthermore, the fact that Jesus was put in a specific tomb, the tomb of this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, um, the fact that he was there, there'd be no mistaking where he was. And even as verse 40 picks up with the women standing off from afar, and they see Jesus die upon the cross, but they also see, as we see a little bit later on in the text, they see where he's buried. So they know where to go to on the first day of the week, on resurrection morning. Though they did not expect it to be resurrection Sunday morning. We'll see all that as we get into the text. We begin in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, where we read, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So the verse begins with a time marker. When the Sabbath was passed, i.e. when Saturday was over. And you recall that by a Jewish reckoning of time, the Sabbath would have ended with nightfall of what we know to be Saturday. Because the Jewish reckoning of time is different from the way that we reckon time. So the Jewish Sabbath would have ended at nightfall. So when morning comes, Jesus has already been in the tomb on Sunday morning for about 12 hours, give or take. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday as we know it. And it's also the third day that Jesus had been in the tomb. So after the Sabbath had passed, these three women identified for us in this text, they bought spices that they might come and anoint him. I want you to see, Mark calls attention to their names. He names them, just as he had done earlier in Mark chapter 15. More about that in a few moments. But you can see from the text, they did not go expecting or anticipating a resurrection. They did not go to the tomb expecting to find it empty. They expected to find a corpse. So they went, and on that morning, they bought spices. When you look in Luke's Gospel, you can see that they had prepared spices. In Luke chapter 23, that they had prepared spices on the day that Jesus was crucified. But then when the Sabbath had arrived, they knew they couldn't go then, so they were going to wait till the first day of the week. They go and they buy even more spices. Interesting that on the first day of the week, on that day, it was kind of business as usual for so many people. The marketplace was open for the selling of things like spices. And so for so many people, it would be a kind of another day at the office kind of day. But it wouldn't be for everyone, certainly not for these women. Now, they they buy these spices, and we know on a practical level that what the spices would do is that they would kind of perfume or cover to some degree the the smell of decomposition, right? That as the uh, Jews didn't embalm their dead, as say the Egyptians did, what would happen is that there would be a, a stench that would arise from where the corpse was. But although there was that practical aspect to it of some degree, this was more an act of respect, and devotion. That's more of what it was than some practical concern for somebody who was already in a tomb with a stone covering the tomb. This was an act of love and devotion. There were some spices that had already been placed um, upon the burial site or where Jesus was. Nicodemus, for instance, he put about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe there. Uh, we see that in John 19.39. So we we shouldn't necessarily assume that the women thought there wasn't enough preparation. Maybe they did think that. Maybe they thought, you know, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus didn't have enough time to do justice to preparing the spices, so we want to go and make sure that we do this right. That could have been part of the equation. But again, this is just an outflow, I think, of their respect and devotion to their Lord. And you get the sense that even though Jesus had gone, they still wanted to keep showing love towards him. I love that. So often when we come to these Resurrection Sunday passages at the end of the Gospels, I am so impressed at the love and devotion that these women had for the Lord Jesus. There was such, if you will, a kind of holy preoccupation with Him that arose from a genuine affection for Him that even the absence of His physical presence, even amidst their great sadness, couldn't stop them from wanting to just show love and loyalty and fidelity 
to Christ. I would encourage you, even as I encourage myself, let our beholding of their affection for Jesus fan the flames of our own. Think of their affection. And think, think to a degree also of their courage. Like they're going, it's morning, it, light is beginning to dawn, so they're going to, be, you know, they're going to be out there for people to see, but that wasn't going to stop them from going and bringing the spices to where Jesus' body was. So you get a sense of courage, or at least fear didn't seem to be a factor for them. To whatever degree it was, it didn't stop them. They went and they expressed their fidelity, not in the secrecy of night, but at the beginning of the day as the light began to dawn. I want you to note also that their love and loyalty was consistent. John, uh, Mark, uh, had noted previously in Mark chapter 15, verse 41, that these women were those who followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. And they weren't the only ones. We see in the second half of verse 41 that many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So this is a noble identification of them. They were with him since the early days of his ministry in Galilee. And in fact, when you look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see that these women were among the women, at least some of the ones that are listed here were doubtless among the ones who are um, assumed and spoken of in Luke chapter 8, who supported Jesus out of their sustenance. And per a different Greek manuscript that you could reference, the disciples as well. So they ministered to Christ and his disciples. They used their own sustenance to help support the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And then when Jesus is on the cross, who's there? Well, we know John was there. We know Mary was there. But the women were there also. In the the case of what we read in Mark, they were standing and watching from afar. At the burial, who is there? It's the women. They are there and they're watching the burial from afar. Then it's Resurrection Sunday morning and who's there? It's the women. They are there again on Resurrection Sunday morning. Look at their consistency and their fidelity. They didn't just show up at one event never to be heard from ever again. They were consistent through and through. And their fidelity was expressed through their loyalty and their love. I want you to notice one other thing. Mark calls attention to their names. And that's important because we're not the first readers of Mark's gospel. People in that generation who were reading the gospel of Mark, they could, if they wanted to, go and interview these women. They were credible witnesses, if you will. You could say, did this really happen? Mary, did did, did this really happen? Did you really see the burial? Did you really go? Did you really see an angel? Did you really see an empty tomb? This speaks to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the first readers of Mark's Gospel wanted to, they could interview these women. The names were out there because this was real history. This wasn't once upon a time. It was real history. We get some more chronological details in verse 2 where we read, Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So each of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, note that the resurrection happened on the first day of the week, which was and is Sunday. They came to the tomb, per our text, very early in the morning when the sun had risen. When you look at the other gospel accounts, you can basically see that they arrived there just as daybreak began. The sun had risen, but like John notes in John chapter 20, verse 1, it was still dark. Which is why, as Matthew notes, the women came to the tomb as it began to dawn, Matthew 28, verse 1. Or as Luke noted, at early dawn, 
So you can see the consistency, different language, but nonetheless consistency among the different gospel accounts. It's worth noting as well that daybreak in itself, when all of a sudden the darkness of night gives away to the breaking through of light in the morning, the beginning of dawn, is a pointer to Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 78, Jesus is identified by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying. Jesus is identified as the day spring from on high. Day spring being a word that appears to speak of the dawn. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus referred to himself as the bright and morning star. And many note that the morning star would be that star that heralds a new day and outshines all other stars, which we would understand from our context to be the sun. And now, just as an interesting aside, and Lord willing will see this when we get to our study of the Psalms, this is just as an interesting aside. So I'm just calling your attention to this because I just find this interesting. I'm not so much giving a theological comment on this. But in Psalm 22, which is a psalm of the cross, and a psalm that I think also alludes to the resurrection, and we'll see that when Lord willing we get there, it's set to the tune of the deer of the dawn. I just find that interesting given the fact that Jesus is identified as the day spring from on high. So there the women were. They were approaching the tomb at dawn when they began to think of a potential issue that they were going to have to deal with. In verse 3 we read, And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now, notice what the women were not thinking. They were not thinking, I can't wait to see the resurrected Lord. I mean, he told us about this. He told us three days later he was going to rise from the dead. Even his adversaries knew that. Even the chief priests who wrongly identified him as a deceiver, they knew that he said he was going to rise from the dead. But they didn't go to the tomb expecting to find him raised. Rather, They expected to find a stone there, a heavy stone, as Mark notes in verse 4. One heavier than they would be able to move. And you say, how do they know that a stone was there? Well, remember, when Jesus was buried, they were kind of watching from a distance. So they knew that a stone was there. But as they're going there, now they're wondering, well, who's going to roll away the stone for us? It's too big. It's a large stone. How is that going to happen? So they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us. Now, I have had the honor of being in many Christian homes, uh, the homes of many Christians, and I've seen Bible verses on refrigerators, I've seen Bible verses on bulletin boards, I've seen Bible verses on pillows, couches, and and so on. I have Bible verses in, in our own home. If you go into Thea's room, you'll see a verse from Jeremiah right up on the wall and so on. But I've never seen, not in my home, nor in any of the homes that I've visited, I've never seen Mark 16.3 on a pillow or on the refrigerator or on a bulletin board. And you know, I do understand. I understand why we haven't seen that and why I haven't seen that. But I want to suggest to you, I think it's a really good one to put on the refrigerator or the bulletin board or a pillow or a blanket. Why? Because I think it's paradigmatic of what we often find happen in our own lives. Notice, the women are saying among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? So they had a legitimate concern. They were worried, anxious, if you will, about how the stone was going to be moved. 
And so often I find to be the case how many times we worry about how a metaphoric stone would be moved. One bigger than we could move only to find out that we never have to deal with moving it because God took care of it before we arrived. And I just love this. They're concerned about this, but it's as though God went ahead of them via sending an angel and took care of it for them. And they never had to deal with the problem that they thought they were going to have to deal with. So I suggest Mark 16, verse 3, at least the second half. A good reminder that stones that are beyond our moving are often rolled away by God's grace before they ever provide an issue for us. So as to drive that point home a little bit further, consider what J.C. Ryle wrote concerning this propensity of ours. A large proportion of a saint's anxieties arise from things which never really happen. We look ahead to all the possibilities of the journey towards heaven. We conjure up in our imagination all kinds of crosses and obstacles. We mentally carry tomorrow's troubles as well as today's. And often, very often, we find at the end that our doubts and alarms were groundless and that the thing we dreaded most has never come to pass at all. Let us pray for more practical faith. Let us believe that in the path of duty we shall never be entirely forsaken. Let us go forward boldly and we shall often find that the lion in the way is chained. And what appears to be a hedge of thorns is only a shadow. Well, the women were about to find that kind of thing firsthand. At least find that out firsthand. In verse 4 we read, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. So Mark begins verse 4 by saying, but when they looked up, as though, perhaps, perhaps, to say that their heads were to some degree hung low and their eyes were downcast as they walked, but as they looked up, they saw something that startled them. They saw that the stone had been rolled away. They were probably concerned and curious. We know that in John's Gospel, Mary Magdalene thought somebody's taken away the body of her Lord. The body had been stolen. Maybe grave robbers had come. Grave robbers were a problem in that day. So there were all kinds of things that could have been going through their mind at that moment. That is another witness to the fact that these women were not expecting a resurrection. That even when they saw the tomb... Uh, The stone rolled away. As we see in the opening verses of John 20, the conclusion was not immediately, he's alive. But rather, no, something must have happened. His body must have been taken. They also were not expecting to see a rolled away stone. One reason being, as Mark appears to accent, for it was very large. As though to say it wasn't an easy thing for a stone of that size to be moved. Now notice, I want want you to see this, because I think this is also instructive and paradigmatic for us. The stone had been moved, so the problem of the stone was taken care of before they had even gotten there. But there was another problem that they would have had to have faced that was also taken care of before they got there. They just didn't know about that problem. What problem was that? The Roman guards who were assigned to watch the tomb and keep it as you know, sealed to keep it as secure as possible. They never even have to deal with that problem. You say, why didn't they have to deal with that problem? Well, because when the guards woke up from being unconscious, the tomb was empty. And you say, wait a minute, why were the guards unconscious? Well, Matthew tells us why they were unconscious. At the beginning of Matthew 28, in verse 2, we could see that Matthew tells us there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. 
He also goes on and he tells us that his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. We see that in verses 3 and 4. That's why they were unconscious. A glorious angel from God descended. A great earthquake happened as a result of his descent. And the next thing you know, they became like dead men. Like dead men. I'm reminded of how great the glory of God's holy angels are. And doubtless it would be great seeing that they are coming from the very presence of the glorious God himself. Now, when you think of Roman soldiers, you don't think of like easy to scare, frady cats, if you will. It's not the kind of men that these men were by and large. I know yesterday when I... uh, and I picked up some pastries. I saw a man in, in that place who just, he seemed like he could be the champion of some wrestling federation of one kind or another. He seemed like he could lead a, an army, a battalion, or a legion. He was like a, a strong man, like just looked like big, made me feel like, like I need to work out more or do something like that. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know what these Roman guards look like, but a lot of times you, you think, you know, I don't know if they looked the part, but nonetheless they had the part. They were Roman soldiers. I don't think they were easy to scare frady cats. But when a holy angel of God descends, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake, these men shook for fear and were like dead men. And just as an aside, if that would be the reaction to a holy angel, what would be the reaction to seeing the holy God of the universe. You get glimpses of that in Isaiah 6. We get glimpses of that in Job 42. We get glimpses of that in Habakkuk 3. We get glimpses of that in Revelation 1. But nonetheless, let us just imagine. And for a believer, you think, it's, oh, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. But for someone who's not reconciled to God, rest assured, the fear that will strike a person on that day when they stand before the living, glorious God, not reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, their fear will far exceed the fear of even these Roman guards. So I encourage you, just as an aside, right now in the middle of the message, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So you need not fear the revelation of Jesus when He comes in His glory. Well, As a brief aside, I do also want to remind you that these uh, Roman guards, they eventually awoke. (laughs) They didn't stay as dead men uh, indefinitely. They did awake, and when they awoke, this is what they did. In Matthew 28, we're told that they reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. At least all that they saw before they, you know, passed out. And they told the chief priests. And what do you think the chief priests said? We've been so wrong about everything that we've thought about Christ and are conspiring to have Him killed and so on. No, that's not what they said. They said, okay, so an angel came. Well, the the, the guards told them everything. So we're assuming they said, the angel came, there was an earthquake, He was glorious, next thing we know, we're passed out. And they say, okay, let's move to plan B. We're going to bribe the guards. And we want you to tell a different story than the one that actually happened. We want you to say, rather than an angel came and whatever else you're telling us happened, we want you to say that the disciples stole the body. And I think that this witnesses also to the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. Because they couldn't deny an empty tomb. 
the chief priests couldn't deny the fact that there was an empty tomb. What they had to do was accommodate the reality, even though they didn't want to. Okay, we've got to move to plan B. Plan B is, we are going to say, the disciples stole the body, which inadvertently witnesses to the fact that the tomb was empty. They couldn't say the body was there, because it wasn't. And I think that's another witness um, to the fact of the historical reality of the resurrection. Now, we know from Luke's account and from John's account that there were two angels, but Mark and Matthew focus in on one. And in verse 5 we read, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And they were alarmed. Now, Matthew identifies this man, or at least this one who looked like a man, and we know that oftentimes that is the case with angels, that they take the appearance of men, and they look like men. Uh, Matthew identifies this man as an angel. John identifies both beings as angels in John chapter um, 20. Mark insinuates this by referring to his long white robe. Luke describes the apparel of the angels as shining garments. Shining garments, Luke 24, 4. But Mark just describes what he looked like. He looked like a young man, and we know that's not unusual in the Scriptures for angels to look like human beings. Mark tells us they were alarmed. And this is a word that speaks to their wonder, their astonishment, that they were marveling, that they were awestruck. Luke tells us in Luke 24, verse 5, that they fell face with their faces to the ground. So that's how astonished they were. They marveled to that degree. They were that alarmed. But the angel was not there to impress the women with his glory. He was there to explain to them the empty tomb. And in verse 6 we read, But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So the angel said to the women, do not be alarmed. They were alarmed, per verse 5. They were so alarmed, they fell with their faces to the ground. But the angel says, do not be alarmed. And I want to note that we have no reason to think that the angel said that to the Roman soldiers. And as J.C. Ryle noted, the friends of Christ have no cause to be afraid of angels. And I think that's a blessed assurance for the people of God. After that assurance, if you were to look at this in the, in the Greek text, after that assurance, do not be alarmed. The very next word, and I just like noting this, the very next word after that is Jesus. Do not be alarmed. And the way it just flowed in the, in the Greek text is Jesus. The angel was about to give an explanation for the empty tomb. What was the explanation? The disciples stole the body. That somehow they pulled off this covert operation and they managed to you know, achieve success over the Roman guard that was assigned to the tomb? No. That was the lie that the religious leaders told the Roman soldiers to spread. And indeed, Matthew said, it was spread and circulated so much that around his day, they were still talking about that and still saying that. But I don't think we should go with that. <laughs> I think we go with the angel that was sent from God and with the message that he gave to the women. He said, he is risen. In Luke's Gospel, we see that the angel also asked the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? In Matthew's Gospel, we see that the angel also included the words, after saying, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. 
as though the accent, the truthfulness of Jesus' words and Jesus' resurrection being a fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecy about his resurrection. But the point is clear. This is the big takeaway. This gospel, like the other gospels, wants you to know that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Notice the difference in the language between the then, if you will, and the now of the moment, right? The angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. Notice the difference there. He was crucified. He is risen. And the angel even wants to give them some more empirical evidence so that they could feast their eyes on the empty tomb. He says, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. The place where he laid was empty. There wasn't a body in the tomb. Just as a quick pastoral aside, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Please know that your eternity hangs upon whether or not, in part, you believe that. If you do not believe truly in your heart that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, you will not be saved. As a matter of fact, to use language from John 3, the wrath of God, it abides on you in this moment. You may not feel it, you may not be carrying it around like a literal weight upon your shoulders, but nonetheless, if you do not believe that, the wrath of God abides on you. But if you do believe that, then by the grace of God, you've been made a friend of God through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the grave, if you actually believe that, then there's been a a working of repentance that's happened in your own heart as well. You've had a change of thinking as it relates to your own self-righteousness. You see you're not good enough to get to God. So you've had a change of thinking that at least to some degree has resulted in a change of behavior, a change of direction. He is not here. He is risen. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 tells us that Christ was delivered. He was delivered for our offenses. And He was raised for our justification. Our justification is tied to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is our justification tied to that, but our regeneration. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we are told that we are begotten again. That new birth from above, the work of the Holy Spirit, is tied to the work of Jesus' resurrection on our behalf, which is doubtless tied to His ascension and sending forth of the Holy Spirit and so on. Jesus' resurrection, according to Acts 17, is a proof that God has given to humanity that one day He will judge the living and the dead. It's a proof. Jesus' resurrection is a proof that He was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Do you believe this? Do you believe that He is nowhere to be found on earth physically because He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven bodily? Do you believe this? It can't just be a story that you know. It has to be truth that you believe. It can't just be something that you hear. It can't just be an annual kind of reflection. It has to be your life that you stake your eternity on the fact that the Son of God died for your sins and rose from the grave. And you believe that because Christ rose from the dead, He's the first fruits of those who are going to rise from the dead. And you know that one day you will rise as well because Jesus rose from the grave. Do you believe this? Because to be here and to just hear this and to say, you know, it's a nice Easter Sunday and I went to church and I heard a message and I feel a little bit more spiritual than I would have been otherwise will do you no good. But to, by the grace of God, trust in the Son of God that He is risen. Then you one day will rise with Him. 
when he returns, or rise to meet him, I should say, he already having risen, you will rise to meet him. Hallelujah. I want you to consider all the witnesses that we've considered already. And by the, by the way, when I say rise to meet him, I talk about the resurrection, either when the believer's spirit is joined with their body and glorified, those who are already with Christ, or those who are alive are in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, given a glorified body and meet Christ in the air. Language that comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Um, I want you just to briefly consider all the witnesses that we've considered already to the resurrection of Christ. I'll give you five, um, just so far, just what we've seen already. You have the eyewitness account of the women who are mentioned in this text. And there were more women besides the women who are mentioned here. Um, Luke, for instance, references Joanna. But we see three women referenced in our text. So you have the eyewitnesses of these women. They're listed by name in Mark's gospel so that people could go up to them and even ask them and interview them if they wanted to, so to speak. You also have the witness of the rolled away stone and an empty tomb. The guards wouldn't have denied the rolled away stone. The chief priests wouldn't have denied a rolled away stone. The women were bearing witness to the rolled away stone. You have the witness of that. You have the witness of an angel. An angel of God is witnessing to the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. You have the witness of Roman soldiers who fled from the tomb after they awoke from their fear-induced slumber. And you have the witness of the lie of the chief priests which cannot negate the reality of the empty tomb. Those are just some of the witnesses just found in the text that we've considered already, and there are so many others. Well, the angel not only gave the women an explanation, he also gave them some instructions. And in verse 7 we read, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. This is the first post-resurrection commission. Look at the beginning of the text. But go. The first resurrection Sunday commission. And it's the women who are assigned to be these first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. That in itself is a kind of internal witness to the truthfulness of the Scriptures. If you were just making up an account, you would not, I would argue, have women, especially in that culture, especially amidst the Jewish culture, have women being the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Women were not typically allowed in that culture to be a witness in the court of law, specifically the Jewish court of law. Josephus, for instance, wrote, Let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. So I say that to say if the gospel writers were fabricating events, there's no way, so to speak, that they would use women as the immediate witnesses of the resurrection. Well, then why did they? Because that's what happened. (laughs) So they just recorded the events as it happened. They were told, the women were told, to go tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he was going before them into Galilee just as he said he would. Interesting how an angel of God, right, who has the assignment of being a communicator of God's truth and revelation, uh, that an angel of God would communicate, being a messenger of God, that he would communicate specific instructions identifying and singling out Peter as being a recipient of this grace-filled invitation and message. Why Peter? Why Peter? I think because Peter had denied Jesus worse than the other disciples. He promised that he would never abandon Christ, yet he did. 
He was warned by Jesus that he would deny him, but Peter denied him nonetheless, and repeatedly at that. And despite the fact that Peter failed, Peter belonged to Jesus, and Jesus had specific intentions of restoring Peter. We've seen that on previous Resurrection Sundays when we've studied the latter portion of John's Gospel. But nonetheless, already we get hints of that because there's a special uh, identification of Peter right here. And I just want to apply that to anyone who would see themselves as a failure. Because Peter, doubtless in that moment, saw himself as a failure. So I don't know what your history is, but you might esteem yourself to be like somebody who, well, I've walked with Christ for a little while, but then I just failed. I mean, I just... I just denied him in one way or another, or I took a wrong path and I made wrong decisions, and this is the first time that I'm back or hearing a message like this, and I just look at myself and I think of myself as a failure. Well, let me first tell you that we are all fallen, we are all sinners, and even on our best day, we all have sin that we need to repent of. All of us. No matter how close you get to God this side of eternity, you still bear a fallen frame. I still bear a fallen frame. So even on our best days, we are still prone to fail to one degree or another. But you may say, no, I'm not talking about just the the general sinfulness that we all have. I'm talking like, I have failed. Well, I want to remind you that this is a good word to failures. There's restoration in Jesus Christ. You need not stay in that pit, identifying yourself as nothing more than a failure. Why don't you today, by the grace of God, see the grace of God as bigger than your failures? And may that make you love Him all the more. After all, He who has been forgiven much, loves much. It's not the healthy, after all, that need a physician. It's the sick. Um, And you want to see a little bit more grace? Uh, Look at verse 7 again. Their message, they were to tell the disciples that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. And they would see him in Galilee. They would see him there, eventually. But they wouldn't see him there that night. (laughs) Go to Galilee. Nope. You know where they were? They were in the locked room, upper room, for fear of the Jews. That's where they were. And what happens? Jesus still meets them. It's not like Jesus is in Galilee and saying, I'm just going to wait here, and when they get to Galilee, that's where I will meet them. No, he would meet them in Galilee, and we see that very clearly. We see that in John's Gospel, we see that in Matthew's Gospel. But I love how on Resurrection Sunday evening, he goes and he meets his fearful disciples, even though they didn't meet him in Galilee. He goes to them, minus Thomas, who would be there next a week from Resurrection Sunday, the next first day of the week. Well, our text this morning ends in verse 8 where we read the following. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and they were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Again, if you were making this up, would you write this? Would you create speechless women witnesses? Especially in that historical context. I'm going to argue no, you wouldn't. But why did Mark record it like this? Because that's what happened. They were trembling. They were astonished. They were temporarily silent. They ran from the tomb. And they didn't tell anyone, at least until they ended up telling the disciples. But when you read in Matthew's Gospel, we see that in the midst of their alarm, in the midst of their running, who meets them on the road? Jesus. In Matthew 28, verse 9, Jesus meted them. He greeted them. (laughs) They came and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him.
and they worshipped him. Talking about exceeding expectations. They didn't arrive to the tomb that morning expecting to see an empty tomb. They expected to see a corpse. They didn't anticipate seeing a resurrection. And even when they're running away, they're alarmed and they're filled with fear. And who surprises them nonetheless on their, in the midst of their running? Jesus, according to Matthew 28, verse 9. And they fell at his feet and they worshipped him. So how can I close this? I'll close this by saying the following. I think, by the grace of God, Resurrection Sunday is often a great reminder for us to bear witness of the resurrection. These women had the responsibility to go tell the disciples that Jesus was risen from the grave. And you see that the disciples, after their fearfulness, after they see the risen Christ, you see in the book of Acts over and over again. It would be a great exercise for you to look through the book of Acts and see from Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 how the resurrection is proclaimed. In Acts chapter 3, Jesus is identified as the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the grave. A chapter earlier, in that first Pentecost message that Peter is preaching, he's explaining how the resurrection was in fulfillment of the Scriptures, namely Psalm 16. In Acts chapter 4, you go on in Acts chapter 10 and so on, the resurrection was at the center of apostolic preaching. So I just want to encourage you, you have the responsibility, you who are in Christ Jesus, to bear witness of the resurrection. That Jesus is alive. He was crucified. He has been risen. He's at the right hand of the Father and He's coming again. You go through the Scriptures and you'll see that there are so many witnesses to this. We know Mary Magdalene was. Um, We see that also in John chapter 20. Uh, Mary, Salome, Joanna, and the other women. We see that in a text like this as well as in Luke and Mark's Gospel. Jesus would appear to Simon Peter personally in Luke 24, verse 34, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that's referenced. Jesus would appear to uh, Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus. We see that in Luke 24. He would appear to the 11 minus Thomas on Resurrection Sunday evening. He would appear to the disciples plus Thomas a week later. He appeared, we're told, to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias. He appeared to the disciples at Galilee in Matthew 28. He was seen by 500 brethren at one time. He appeared to James, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. That was all before his ascension. After his ascension, he appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, all of which attests to the reality that he is risen, which is great news for you and it's great news for me. Because Jesus is risen, your resurrection to life as opposed to judgment is assured. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection affirms the believer's security, that you get to live this life with a sense of security. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Good news. He is alive never to die again. And because He lives... You can not only face tomorrow, to quote an old song, but because He lives, you will forever live with Him, you who are in Christ Jesus. Good news of the Gospel. And just practically, for whatever you may face in your life, now, in days ahead, if God can conquer a big problem like death, (laughs) is there a problem that you or I face that is too big for Him? 
And how big do our problems really appear when we consider that the Son of God is risen from the dead and that one day all who are in Christ Jesus will receive glorified bodies when they rise with Him to enjoy Him to the totality that they can forever and ever and ever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the great truth that we get to consider week in and week out and considering what we get to um, think upon on these days where we look on texts that teach about the resurrection. We say thank You, Lord. Thank You that You didn't leave us to our own sinfulness and our own devices, but You sent Your Son and Your Son took on human flesh and He stood in our place and He died for our sins and He was buried and He rose from the grave and You furnished us with not just one or two, but a great company of witnesses, Lord. Father, my prayer in this moment would be above all that by Your grace You might be glorified in the spirit-wrought belief of every person in this room, that there just might be true, sincere faith in the fact that You in great love and in great mercy sent Your Son, and that He died and rose for sinners like us. Father, I pray that perhaps for some this would be a, a turning point that this would be the day by Your grace that they say, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that, Father, that that confession would be a true one so that the actions of their lives, Lord, would befit that confession. And, Father, may You bring about such a conviction in their hearts where they say, I believe that He died for my sins and I believe that He rose from the grave. May You get such glory from the Christ followers that You uh, make by Your grace even this day. And for those who have come to that place, by Your grace, by no strength or wisdom in and of themselves, Lord, but for those who are in that place already, Father, I pray that their faith might be encouraged today. And I pray, Father, that by Your grace we might spend much of the day that follows thinking upon the resurrected Christ, thinking upon the narrative that we study today, and thinking of the truth that is inseparable to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.